A brief update. It's May the 12th, 2024. I've released just two episodes of this year. My father-in-law passed away in January. He bravely fought a multitude of health issues for well over 15 years. Rest in peace, John. My wife of more than 20 years, Lisa, is remarkably strong, much more so than I. Her outlook on life is always positive and has motivated me to resume my passion project. Research for new episodes is now well underway. Stay tuned and sincere thanks for subscribing to my podcast. That 21-point game that you mentioned almost makes me emotional when I think about it. It was the single most significant game in my professional career. Wow. Because that game was against Philly and Dr. J. And we kind of went head-to-head that game. I think Dr. J had 20, and I had 21. And, I mean, Dr. J was my childhood idol. And to go head-to-head and play well made me feel good. But when the game was over... I kind of stopped and glanced and Dr. J was at the other end and he motioned for me to meet him at half court. And he said, hey, good game, Holton. He said, you know, you keep playing like that. You got a future in this league. It meant everything to me for Dr. J to give me a word of encouragement. Then you are in Australia right now. You're talking NBA basketball. You're talking great teams. You're talking great individual players. Takes it off and there's number 23. And of course, Johnny goes nuts. We're all getting first time thinking about it now. I just tried to go out there and play my game. I have no idea what you're talking about, Adam. I don't like anybody. I'm not a people person. Strand, you made the pass. Yes. Christian, can you catch the ball? Yes. All the stars were aligned and all the muscles fired at the right time. And I was able to get off the ground and throw one down. I was saving that as a surprise for you. And now, introducing your host for In All Airness, Adam Ryan. Welcome to episode 72. Thanks for joining me. Today, I'm excited to welcome Michael Holton to the show. Whilst I can honestly say that I've thoroughly enjoyed each and every guest appearance to date, this conversation is one of the best episodes yet. Michael shares some great stories, coupled with his dry sense of humor which I should add, is right up my alley. We talk about his four-year journey at UCLA, where he played in the national championship game as a freshman, and the trials and tribulations of his NBA and CBA career, with some unique twists and turns along the way. Atop all this, one of the most fascinating wrinkles of Michael's career is his 1986 NBA season. His rise from CBA All-Star to the Chicago Bulls has to be heard to be believed. Of course, we talk about the other Michael on that Bulls roster, Schmreck. Actually, no, sorry, Jordan. Hello to future podcast guest, I hope, Mike Schmreck, if you're listening. We had some very minor Skype issues towards the end of our conversation. I've fixed it up as best as possible, but you will note a few seconds here and there where it does become a bit glitchy. But 99% of the conversation is absolutely perfect. Stay up to date with my podcast and subscribe to my monthly email newsletter. You'll receive exclusive details on upcoming podcast episodes, future high-profile guests to appear on the show, and plenty more. Simply visit inallairness.com slash news. Show notes for this episode, including links to numerous topics covered, are at inallairness.com slash 72. Now, on to the show. 
My guest today, as a freshman in college, played in the National Championship game. He spent six seasons in the NBA and a further four in the CBA. His career is a blueprint for determination, perseverance and seizing of opportunities. And to this day, he's still heavily involved with the sport he loves. Michael Holson, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me, Adam. I look forward to going back down memory lane. Yeah, I'm excited to chat with you and I had a great time researching for our conversation today. Now, um, just briefly, before we even get to your high school career, when you were a boy growing up, um, what sort of sports were you involved in and, and what did you like to do as a young boy? Well, my mother, uh, I think recognizing I was very active at an early age, really exposed me to everything that she had access to. So arts and crafts at the boys club, you know, I played a year of little league baseball, three years of pop one or tackle football. And, you know, a lot of basketball in various leagues at the church and the park. So, you know, just had an opportunity to participate in, in a number of sports. I did a lot of swimming, just various things, and eventually realized that basketball was, was my passion and, and what I seemingly excelled at more than the other things that I tried. You went to Pasadena High School in California, and I read that you were a standout in 1979. As a senior, you averaged 27 points per game, and you racked up numerous accomplishments along the way. Uh, what do you remember most about that time in your high school career there, Michael? Uh, I just remember playing for a really great coach in George Turgeon, a very disciplined coach. And I remember how much he emphasized character and consistency and work ethic and fundamentals. I mean, there was a two hour a day basketball fundamentals class in the summer that you pretty much had to take if you were a part of the basketball program. So it was a very well-organized, disciplined, fundamental-based basketball program. And, and I just remember the fundamental part of, of learning all of the technical details of balance, things like that, uh, associated with the game. So when I look back on my high school career, even though we had a lot of success in terms of league championships and, and won a CIF championship, what I remember uh, is how much of a teacher our coach was and how much the emphasis on fundamentals was placed. That's great because those fundamentals are what held you in really good stead as you progressed through to your college and obviously your professional days. So pleased to hear that. Now, I've read that you were seriously considering signing with Oregon or Utah prior to a late push from UCLA to sign with them, and that was led by the legendary coach, Larry Brown. Um, what led to you ultimately choosing to sign with UCLA? Well, when Larry Brown got the job, it was late in the recruiting process. And at that point, I kind of felt loyalty to schools that had spent more time. Uh, and I equated that with being a more sincere interest. And that was difficult for me at that age of my life to navigate through. But when I met Larry Brown and, and he basically explained to me that, you know, I shouldn't hold it against him that he didn't get the job or have the job earlier in the recruiting process and that I shouldn't hold it against myself if it was an opportunity that I wanted to experience it being playing at UCLA. And so Larry Brown was a good recruiter and he made a, a real good point to me that it really freed me to do what I think I always wanted to do as a kid. I mean, play basketball at UCLA if you grew up in Southern California is at the top of your wish list. So uh, that's how I ended up playing for Larry Brown at UCLA. Larry Brown coached you during your freshman and sophomore seasons. And then another Larry, Larry Farmer, coached your last two seasons. Now, when I was researching for our, our chat today, I discovered that you were a starter as a freshman and were named the Bruins' outstanding first-year player. 
So before we chat about your team's amazing postseason run, what do you remember about those first few months as a college player? Uh, I remember, first of all, being, you know, really afraid of not being good enough. Uh, I mean, when you go to UCLA and everybody's a high school All-American, there's a time, you know, at least there was a time for me where, you know, I wouldn't say my confidence was shaky, but where I was really, you know, kind of anxious to see, you know, if I had what it took. And then once we started practice and we started playing and I realized basketball is basketball, I think I, I began to settle in. So after winning eight of your first 14 games, your Bruins caught fire uh, at the perfect time and you steamrolled through the 1980 NCAA tournament all the way to the championship game versus Louisville Cardinals. Uh, please just bear with me for a moment and I'll reel off a, a list of the teams that you defeated and some of the big-time players encountered during the tourney. You went up against Old Dominion with Mark West. You then beat DePaul, who had Terry Cummings and Mark Aguirre. Uh, Ohio State had Calvin Rancy and Clark Kellogg. You then defeated Clemson with Larry Nance and Mitchell Wiggins and also Purdue, who had Joe Barry Carroll. So uh, incredible amount of names there that you went past to get through the championship game. Ultimately, you lost out 59-54 to 54 in that championship game, which was played at Market Square Arena. Those Cardinals were also littered with future NBAers like Daryl Griffith, um, Derek Smith, Rodney McRae, and Jerry Eaves. So what are your recollections of that tournament run and making it all the way to that title game as a freshman? First of all, I just appreciate hearing you recount the details of it because it kind of gave me goosebumps a little bit. You know, that season was so special because, like you pointed out, you know, we were eight and six after 14 games. And, and so we, you know, we didn't get out of the gate quickly. And the Pac-10 was a, a tough league. And for a while, we didn't even think we were going to make the postseason. So when uh, Selection Sunday came and we made the postseason and got kind of a, a new life and, and knowing that everybody's schedule would be zero zero at that point, I think we not only felt relieved as a team, but we got a lot of momentum out of just getting that fresh start. So when we started to play teams like Old Dominion and then DePaul at the time was the number one college team in the country. Right led by Mark Aguirre. So that gave us some momentum when we beat them. And that game was played at Arizona State. I remember that game being, uh, I believe, an afternoon game. And when we beat them, Mark Aguirre ran outside onto the concourse and, and was almost unconsolable. And to this day, every time I see him, he reminds me of how heartbroken he was by that experience. Oh, wow. <laughs> that was a, a special run. And, you know, a lot of those other players, I played with Larry Nance uh, in Phoenix and you know, and Joe Barry Carroll and, 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 and on that Ohio State team also had Clark Kellogg, True. Uh, who is uh, now announcer that, that people are very familiar with. So there were a lot of good players on those teams. But I just remember the single elimination feeling of, of NCAA tournament play as a freshman being something I had never experienced in, you know, in my life. And, and before we played Ohio State, I remember being in the tunnel with our team, you know, kind of doing the team huddle before you run out and Larry Brown coming over and, and poking his head in our huddle and told us when we got out on the floor, he didn't want any of us to take our warmups off before the game started. And so we asked him, you know, coach, you know, why? And he said, because I don't want Ohio State to see how small we are. <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> I really appreciate you sharing these sort of things because these are just sort of tidbits that are just all but lost to basketball history, as I like to say sometimes. And it's just so good to hear uh, a player 
reliving some of these moments. So thanks for sharing that. That's quite incredible there to uh, go in the underdogs, obviously, because you reeled off, I think, five straight wins to get through to that championship game. And it was the ultimate do or die single elimination. So, yeah, it's good to hear this sort of stuff. Yeah. And, you know, you're playing, uh, you know, in huge, you know, dome arenas. And, and I've often been asked, you know, what, you know, what was the biggest thing that I remember? or What was the biggest change? And, and for me, the thing that really stands out the most is that when you get to the NCAA tournament, practices are open to the public. And I remember our first NCAA practice, I think there was between five and 7,000 people at practice. Wow. And I had never practiced in front of a crowd. I've played games in front of crowds, but I never practiced in front of a crowd. And I remember that being the thing that struck me the most because it was difficult to focus on the details of practice when you're practicing in front of the public. I'd never actually even thought of it that way. So you raise a, a good point there. That would have been another thing to adjust to. And you'd have to do it quickly, given the fact that you were just at the start of that tournament run. Yeah, because, you know, practice is, is kind of the classroom, if you will. And that's where coaches, you know, say things, put things in, uh, you know, get very verbal or sometimes even discipline or correct. And, and so that environment generally has a certain amount of privacy and intimacy associated with it for that coach player relationship and even the player player relationship. So, you know, practicing in, in front of the public when the stage is so big that you're going to play on. I just recall that being the biggest adjustment challenge for me. Right. Okay. Well, your freshman season was the senior year for Kiki Vandeway, and he went on to star, of course, in the NBA and had seven seasons in the 1980s alone where he had 20-plus points per game. So as the sort of elder statesman of your Bruins team, given you were a freshman at the time, how important was his influence and, and that of the other seniors or juniors on your squad at that time? It was big. I mean, Kiki Vandaway was, I think, our leading scorer, and he was certainly our go-to guy. But, you know, we had other seniors on that team, and, and James Wilkes and, and Gig Sims and Daryl Allums. And, you know, we started a six-six sophomore center in Mike Sanders. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I just came back from, you know, being in Prague doing basketball camps with Mike Sanders. So it was good to relive with him some of the things you and I are discussing here today. But Kiki, and I say this lovingly, you know, we blame him for losing the national championship because <laughs> I think we were up four with maybe two minutes to go, something like that, and got a steal or forced a turnover and got in the open court. And a Louisville guard cut in front of Kiki, and he had to kind of double clutch his layup, and he missed it, which would have put us up six. And I think Daryl Griffin came down and knocked down a couple of shots, and the game was tied, and, and it got away from us. So... I have repeatedly reminded Kiki of what he cost me. <laughs> <laughs> but how does he react to that? You know, he just takes it playfully as well. Yeah, he takes it playfully as well. I played with Kiki in the pros as well on the Portland Trailblazers. So there's a good relationship there, and I have a tremendous amount of respect for Kiki. Excellent. Uh, now, as a, a sophomore in 1981 outright, and then as a junior in 1982 – with Ralph Jackson, you were named the Bruins' outstanding team player and you made the second round of the tourney in 81 but missed the postseason in 82. Uh, and also at this time, former guests and friends of the show, Mark Eaton and Nigel McGill, uh, joined your Bruins team at that time as well. Um, how did you find those middle two seasons in college there, Michael? Yeah, they were, they were actually a challenge for me, quite frankly. Uh, the sophomore season was a challenge because we were coming off that national title game and, 
and felt pressure to get back there and didn't, it was painful because I think Danny Ainge gave us 37 points and I think I was guarding him. (laughs) 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 And then we lost our coach, Larry Brown, to the New Jersey Nets. And when Larry Farmer was promoted to coach, one of the first stamps he put on the program was to start Ralph Jackson at the point guard and to bring me off the bench. Uh, And so my junior year presented another type of challenge for me, having started two years, started in a national championship game, having a coaching change and then coming off the bench behind somebody that was, you know, a year behind me in school Mm. just presented some individual challenges for me that ended up becoming great opportunities for growth and maturity, but at the time uh, were, were challenging. Yeah, I can only imagine that uh, how do you have to make that sort of adjustment on the fly. Now, I know that college basketball these days is absolutely huge. Uh, when it gets to tournament time, everybody seems to be focusing on it, and rightly so. Back in the early uh, 1980s and around the time frame we're chatting here about your career, how were things on the campus of UCLA? Was it absolute madness for the Bruins, or was it sort of tempered somewhat? What was it like back then? Uh, being a, a student athlete at UCLA during that stretch was certainly a, a privileged position to be in. <laughs> you know, we enjoyed great support, uh, enjoyed great exposure in terms of being on television every game. And, you know, I just think UCLA is the best college campus environment in the country. Obviously, I'm very biased, but, you know, it was just a special time because we had been to the national championship game. You know, that that even elevated kind of people's interest uh, in the program and the interest level was already high. So, you know, we uh, had to make sure that as student athletes, we kept things in perspective in terms of class and in terms of focus, you know, and, and not get uh, the big head or get, you know, beside ourselves in terms of competitiveness, growth and development. But, you know, if I had it to do all over again and I could go back to the pros or go back to college, I'd go back to college. As a, a senior, you were named captain and led the team in free throw percentage as well. Um, your college career ended with a, a second round exit against the Utah Utes. I think you had a, a first round bye because of your seeding. Uh, after you reached the title game as a freshman, how difficult was it to exit the tournament early, particularly given it was your final game as a, a Bruin? I guess that was the polar opposite of, of my freshman year and starting and playing for a national championship and you know, I, I remember the sadness of, of that tournament elimination, not just because it was the end of, of my college career, but I just remember Larry Brown telling us after that freshman year run to the tournament that, you know, enjoy it because it doesn't happen every year and it's not promised. And so I think the way my college career ended with that defeat kind of reminded me that you need to enjoy, you know, every day, every second and every experience in life because you just don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, you left college with averages of uh, just over seven points a game. You shot better than 50% from the field, and you had more than two assists and almost three rebounds per game. And that sort of leads us towards the June draft, the 1983 NBA draft in New York. Uh, Ralph Sampson was picked number one overall, and that draft also featured a few other former guests of this show, including Sadal Threat, Craig Elo, and Dale Ellis. Um, you were selected in the third round, I think number 53 overall, by the Golden State Warriors. Um, when you headed into the draft, were you aware of which teams were interested in picking you? No, uh, you know, I was, I felt kind of on the bubble a little bit. Uh, you know, when you looked at draft projections, I, you know, I knew I wasn't a, you know, a first round pick. And, 
And at that point, I think there were 10 rounds, so you could fall anywhere in the draft. And and I remember going to the NBA's pre-draft camp and, and playing reasonably well. So, you know, I felt like I would be drafted, uh, you know, but I think there were 23 teams at that time and, and not even all first round picks got guaranteed contracts. So I knew going into the draft that even if I was drafted, I still was going to have to establish myself and make a team. The Warriors waived you in early October of 1983, if my timeline's correct. Uh, how much time had you spent with the team and uh, between being drafted and then actually being waived? Uh, that's a good question. That was, that was after the 83 draft. And so I had played in the summer league with the Warriors. So I had been with them mm-hmm. for a while. I'd gone through the, you know, the free agent camp before the summer league. I'd gone through the summer league and played reasonably well, got to training camp made it through camp and played reasonably well. I remember in the last exhibition game before the preseason. So I was a little surprised when I was released, but you know, the business of basketball, because they drafted Pace Mannion out of Utah, I believe in the second round, he held out from camp, but showed up right towards the end of camp. Uh, And so I think the team ended up needing to make a decision about the numbers unexpectedly because of, of that scenario. And I became the odd man out. Which, you know, again, is the business of basketball because I'm thinking I played the whole summer league. I've been the whole camp. This guy shows up, hasn't done anything and, and signs a guaranteed contract and, and I get an airplane ticket home. Yeah, that must have been a, a difficult uh, pill to swallow, as I say. Um, now, I've, I really enjoyed researching for our chat today and I've learned that before you joined the Phoenix Suns for the 84-85 season, you spent a season in the CBA playing with the expansion franchise, the Puerto Rico Coquis. I think, is that how you pronounce it? Yes, the Coquis. Yeah, the Coquis. The name's taken from a, a variety of small frog or something that lives in that area. Um, their coach, Herb Brown, was the older brother of Larry Brown, your UCLA coach. How did the opportunity to play in the CBA come to be? You know, when I was released by the Golden State Warriors, I remember tearfully walking back to my hotel room uh, remembering something that my mother had taught me, which was, if you never let yourself fall all the way down, you'll never have to pick yourself all the way up. And so uh, I realized that if one of 23 teams didn't need my services, I had 22 other opportunities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so speaking with my agent, the decision was that I would go to the CBA, play semi-pro basketball to earn a second chance. And I was fortunate enough to go to Puerto Rico and play for somebody like Herb Brown, who told me that he and I both wanted to get to the NBA. He wanted to get there as a coach, and he said he knew I wanted to get there as a player, and that if I would listen to him and let him help me develop, that I would probably get there first. Right. So I, I give Herb Brown a lot of credit for developing my game in the areas that it needed to be developed for me to become a pro prospect. Yeah, fascinating to hear this sort of stuff. There's a great website online which is called funwhileitlasted.net, and um, I found a lot of info on there about the CBA, uh, so a shout-out to them. Um, from what I've read on that site, your team entered the playoffs with a CBA-best 26-18 and 18 record before losing to Phil Jackson and the Albany Patroons in the semifinals that 84 season. Um, how did you find that experience in the CBA, particularly given the unique location on a, a Caribbean island? Oh, it was wonderful. If you're going to be in the CBA, you want to be in Puerto Rico. (laughs) (laughs) 
it was it was great. I mean, you know, the weather was wonderful. The setup in terms of all the players, the owner bought a team and a house and refurbished it, and so we all kind of had a family atmosphere living in the house where we could cook and and conversate and and be close. So it was an ideal environment in terms of life in the CBA went. But it wasn't an environment uh, the CBA that didn't come without challenges. I mean, financially, you know, it was, it was tough and and the travel. I mean, the league rule was that. Any game under 500 miles, you had to drive. So we benefited because we were in Puerto Rico that we got to fly to the States. But once in the States, you know, we rode vans 10 hours from here to there. And sometimes we we had van rides and went all night long after a game to get to another location. So you really had to, to come to grips with how determined you needed to be if you were gonna take that CBA experience and turn it into an NBA opportunity. Well, speaking of those opportunities, in late September of 84, you signed with the Phoenix Suns as a free agent, and you then rejoined your former Bruins teammates, I should add, Mike Sanders and Rod Foster, who were also on that Phoenix squad. Um, How did you get from Puerto Rico to the Suns? Well, when the CBA season ended, uh, I believe I went to three NBA free agent camps that summer. I believe I went to Phoenix, uh, Milwaukee, and Cleveland. And uh, George Carl was coaching Cleveland, and I remember. And and all three teams uh, liked me, but none of them liked me enough or were in a position to offer me a guaranteed contract. Mm-hmm. And so my agent and I decided that the Phoenix Suns were the best opportunity for me of the three. Uh, and that's how I ended up in Phoenix. Okay, great. I, I just love hearing the recall of uh, what happened and, and what sort of steps had to fall into place for that to, to actually occur. Um, now... I came across a great Sports Illustrated article, which was from December of 1984, and following a game where you defeated the Chicago Bulls 100-95, to you had 10 points and 5 assists, uh, courtesy of basketballreference.com, I've got those stats. The visiting Chicago Bulls were defeated, and you said of Michael Jordan, and this was the quote in the article, all I saw were the bottom of his shoes. Now, was this the first time that you had played against Jordan, or had you met previously? No, it was the first time uh, I think I played against Jordan, and I think I was a starter in that game, and so I, I saw a lot more of Michael Jordan than I would have liked to. <laughs> the reason I made that comment was because of a move he made in the corner when I was guarding him, and he was pump faking and pump faking and pump faking, and I got so aggressive and getting closer and closer to him, just trying to take the challenge, and I finally bit on one of the pump fakes, and before I could turn around and lift my foot off the floor to try to chase him, he was dunking on my center at the basket, and I did see the bottom of his shoes. <laughs> well, a, a truer comment has never been made then. I guess that's uh, perfectly sums that one up. <laughs> I love this sort of stuff. That's great. So thanks again for sharing this this information. Now, your sons went 36 and 46, and then you met the would-be NBA champion LA Lakers in the first round of the 85 playoffs. How was that taste of NBA playoff basketball? It was not very good. <laughs> <laughs> the result obviously wasn't great. I think they swept you 3-0, but um, was there a big step up in terms of the uh, overall level of play and, and how desperate the players were? Yeah, well, you got to keep in mind, and I'm sure you looked at the numbers when you did the research. The average margin of victory 
was 30 plus points. So we weren't even in any of the games with the Los Angeles Lakers. I mean, and those were the Showtime Lakers and every missed shot was the first pass to their fast break. I mean, magic to Worthy, magic to Cooper. I mean, it was just, it was unbelievable. It got so bad at one point that our coach called timeout and said, I'm going to find the next guy that takes a shot with more than 10 seconds on the clock because I don't want to lose by 50. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness. Uh, so that's John McLeod you're talking about? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, that sort of sums things up pretty well, doesn't it? Yeah. I know there was a couple of really high scoring games as well. I think one was almost, you know, 147 to 130 or something like that. So that leads me into the beginning of the 85, 86 season. And after an 0 4 start, uh, in early November, the Phoenix Suns decided to waive you. And then if I have the timeline correct, you returned to the CBA. And whilst there, you played a key role, scoring 13 points and led your CBA All-Star team to a 110 to 108 win over the then defending champions, Tampa Bay in Florida. I think that was February the 11th of 1986. And the next day, correct me if I'm wrong, February the 12th, you signed the first of what would be two 10-day contracts with the Chicago Bulls. And that was with Jerry Krause, who was the Bulls VP of Operations, who attended that CBA game. So this is going to test your memory, but were you aware of Chicago's interest in you before that game, or was it only after the performance that you had met with Jerry Krause? Well, what happened was the scout for the Chicago Bulls, Billy McKinney, mm -hmm. former Bulls player, had moved into a scouting role, had been at three or four of my CBA games. And so when you're in the CBA, you're always looking in the stands to see are there any NBA scouts there. Right. So, you know, I'd seen Billy at three or four games. He didn't say anything to me. So I didn't have any indication that that the reason he was at the games included me. So at the conclusion of that victory in the CBA All-Star game, Jerry Krause came into the locker room. And came over to me and I was sitting, you know, drenched in sweat in, in my uniform. And he said, are you ready to return to the NBA? Wow. And I said, absolutely. And he pulled out a plane ticket already made out in my name. Oh, fantastic. And handed it to me and said, sign this, fly to Philadelphia tomorrow, and you'll be a part of the Bulls versus the 76ers. That's incredible. My next question was going to be, if I had it right, your first game as a Bull was pretty much the next day. Uh, at Philadelphia. So that's just wonderful to hear this sort of stuff. Um, thanks so much for elaborating on that. And I should add, um, Billy McKinney actually played, I think, for about nine games in the start of the 85, 86 season for the Bulls. Uh, so that was uh, an interesting little tidbit as well. Um, now you joined the Bulls franchise at a really fascinating time in its history. The previous season's rookie of the year, Michael Jordan, of course, he broke his foot in only the third game of the 86 season. So your future with the Bulls team was largely dependent, I guess, on Jordan's return to the court. How were your first interactions with the Bulls teammates when you pretty much turned up to play? Uh, did you travel with the team to Philadelphia or did you have to make your own way there? I flew on the ticket that Jerry Krause gave me, got to the hotel, checked in, and there was a note saying that the bus left for the arena at 5 p.m. So when I got on the bus to go to the arena, it was a very awkward moment in that the other players were on the bus. I mean, George Gervin, Orlando Woolridge, Gene Banks, Sidney Green, 
John Paxson, Kyle Macy. And so I'm this new guy and I just kind of walked by and took a seat. And when we got to the arena and got in the locker room, at that point, I didn't know whether I was going to have a uniform with my name on it or not. I mean, you know, it happened so quickly. So I did have a uniform that had my name on it that looked like everybody else's. And so, you know, I went out and kind of took some shots. And again, it was just awkward in that I didn't really at that point introduce myself to anybody. And, you know, and then right before the game started, Stan Albeck was in the locker room. He was the coach and he started kind of going over the game plan. And then he stopped and said, oh, by the way, guys, we, we signed Michael Houghton today. And, and I want to introduce him to you. And he says, Michael. If you tell us a funny CBA story, I'll put you in the game tonight. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my. Yeah. Okay. Great. (laughs) And so I said, okay, coach, in the CBA, you get $17 a day per diem. And if you get and eat a meal on the plane, you must return a portion of it. (laughs) (laughs) What was the reaction like from the uh, locker room? Everybody laughed and he played me 21 minutes. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is so good. That is, that's fantastic. Uh, well, that would have helped calm the nerves a little bit, would it, as you're about to play that first game with the Bulls or were you still very anxious heading into that game? No, I was just so happy to be back in the NBA. And so, you know, I relaxed and played and the guys were great, you know, and I think we had maybe two more games on that particular trip before we got back to Chicago. And, and I think I was in maybe day seven or eight of the 10 day contract when we got back to Chicago. And so then you start becoming concerned on, is the team going to resign you? And then we get to practice and Michael Jordan shows up and practices. And so the whole thing of signing me was Michael was supposed to be out for the rest of the year and the team wasn't going to make the playoffs. And so they went to the CBA and signed me and Michael didn't like it. And he made it known to me right away that he didn't think the team needed me to be there and that he intended to play. Okay. Wow. So that's fascinating. Um, I know that he returned in mid-March of 86, um, along with a great mate of mine, Aaron, we're doing uh, game-by-game recaps of the Bulls' 1986 season at the moment in a series called NB86, and we've come across some great performances during your time in Chicago, and thanks to basketballreference.com, I did a bit of uh, stat searching last night. You had an eight-game stretch averaging 14 points, two rebounds, three-and-a-half assists, and almost two steals a game in only 29 minutes of contest including a single-game high of 21 points versus Philly in Chicago in late February. Um, do you mind just talking about that little purple patch that you had where you were playing some great basketball and that ultimately led to you signing on with the team for the rest of that season? How did that sort of play out given you had said that Jordan was a bit uh, iffy, to say the least, about you taking a spot on the roster? Yeah, you know, I think a couple of things happened. Uh, I think competitively I had to guard Michael every day in practice and try to prove myself. And and that brought out the best in me, obviously. Mm. Uh, and then the team started to gel. It was a team that, that hadn't had success because of injuries and Michael's injury being the biggest. And all of a sudden, Michael came back and, you know, the guys started playing better and I contributed a little bit. And the team struck this chord of momentum and, and just collectively started playing well. Mm-hmm. And then I think I benefited from not being a guy that, that other teams really had a, a scouting report on. So, you know, as the ball moved, I, I found opportunities. Uh, and so it just became a good stretch. But that 121-point game that you mentioned mm-hmm. almost makes me emotional when I think about it because 
it was the single most significant game in my professional career. Wow. Because that game was against Philly and Dr. J. Dr. J was playing guard at the end of his career. And we kind of went head to head that game. And, and you probably have the stats in front of you. I think Dr. J had 20 or something. And I had 21. And I mean, Dr. J was my childhood idol. And to go head to head and, and play well made me feel good. But when the game was over, the Chicago stadium that the Bulls played in at the time, both teams exited behind the basket. And so when the game was over, I kind of stopped and glanced. And Dr. J was at the other end. And he motioned for me to meet him at half court. And we met at half court and he said, hey, you know, good game, Holton. He said, you know, you keep playing like that. You got a future in this league. And it meant everything to me for Dr. J to give me a word of encouragement. That's just uh, incredible to hear that. It's absolutely fantastic. I've just opened up the box score to that game. Uh Dr. J had 22 points, and along with the 21 points that you had, you also had five boards and four assists. So there was numerous games throughout this period of time we're chatting about where you really were a key contributor and uh, were a great member of that team and certainly were, were helping them get some of the wins that they uh, obviously truly deserved. And the Sixers team at that stage were uh, very good still, 37 and 21 they were with uh, the victory. And thanks for recalling some of this information. It's uh, very insightful, and I can't thank you enough for that. March the 15th, 86, was when Jordan made his return to the court. Now, you're just one of seven players from the Bulls who shared court time with him in that comeback game. You ultimately lost 125 to 116 in overtime against the Milwaukee Bucks. Do you remember much about the fanfare, if it was even that much at all, about his return at that stage? Yeah, I do. Uh, I do, because it was so different from the atmosphere surrounding our team before he returned. Right. I can only equate it to what it must have been like to be in the Jackson 5 traveling with Michael. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the way we approached hotels and entrances and exits and the amount of security needed, you know, when Michael Jordan was present was certainly different uh, than when he wasn't present. But those type of things don't impact you as a player. What impacts you as a player when you get a chance to play with somebody like Michael Jordan is how much attention the other team has to give him and the type of space it creates for everybody else. And also when you mentioned about uh, how Jordan was not overly keen on having you on the roster, um, how were some of those battles that you had in practice? Did they get quite heated or was it just your sense of competition as well that wanted to sort of take over and really prove yourself? What sort of played out there on the practice grounds? Well, it was it was some bumping and, and, and grinding and, and a few exchanges that, that got a little heated because, you know, again, he was coming off of an injury and wanting to show the team he was healthy and he's very competitive. Yep. And and I was, you know, basically trying to feed my wife. Yeah, true, <laughs> fair point. <laughs> so I, I had my own motivation and you know, at one point he told me, you know, don't make me open this can. And I had never heard that statement at that time. So he said it a couple of times and I finally said, you know, kind of, you know, almost chest to chest, you know, what can, you know, and he said this can of whip ASS. (laughs) (laughs) And so to kind of fast forward the story, though, the bull signed me for the rest of the year. and, and, And my wife was still back in Florida because I couldn't fly her up because I thought I may be returning. So when my wife flew up and was in the hotel and I signed for the rest of the year, Michael invited me over to his condo to play some pool, kind of to have a truce a little bit. He said, hey, 
look, man, you're going to be with us the rest of the year. We've been going at it for a couple of weeks. Why don't you come by? Let's, you know, shoot a little pool. So I go by and, and, and shoot a little pool with him. And, and so I thought that was an extremely nice gesture on his part and a very positive compliment to, to how we had competed. Yeah, definitely. Um, just absolutely love these stories. Uh, thanks so much. Um, April the 8th in 1986 was your last game with the Bulls. Uh, you went on the playoff roster and they lost in a three game sweep to the Celtics, including Jordan's incredible, you know, 63 point game in game two. Um, what were your thoughts on possibly remaining with the team, uh, once that season came to an end? Well, you know, the business of basketball, you know, I, I thought that, that I had contributed to the run. Keep in mind, and I'm not taking more credit than I deserve, and I don't deserve a lot of credit, but when the Bulls first signed me to a 10-day contract, they were not in the playoff picture. And so with Michael coming back and the team playing better and me contributing, we made a run and made the playoffs. And then I was left off the playoff roster because the team uh, made the decision to activate Jawan Odom to have more size to play against that big Celtic front line, which I understand. Yep. But I continued to practice as a part of the playoff practices. Okay. So when the team went to, to Boston and Michael scored 63 on the Celtics, I was sitting in a Chicago hotel in front of the TV saying, I got him ready for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, in no small part, you're actually quite correct in saying that. So. I guess that must have been bittersweet in the fact that you were watching it from a Chicago hotel, knowing that only days prior you were part of that team, and uh, unfortunately they had to squeeze somebody off to fit Oldham back into the squad. Yeah, and, and again, it's the business of basketball. I understood that it was extremely awkward, though. I wish I could have at least traveled with the team and kind of been a part of it. But, uh, you know, at the same time, uh, I realized that I didn't have a future in Chicago. I felt like when they left me off the playoff roster, it was a pretty early indication that, you know, I had filled a temporary need uh, and that my NBA career was probably going to resume at another location. Now, I can't let this great opportunity that I'm having to chat with you today without mentioning a fantastic Budweiser promotional poster that I discovered uh, fairly recently, which is entitled Raging Bulls. And it has a great photo of a boxing ring with uh, five of the Bulls players, yourself included, uh, wearing gloves, except Kyle Macy, who's in a boxing umpire's shirt it's really hard to do it justice i'll include a photo of this in the links to this episode on the show notes but do you remember the photo shoot and and how it came to be that there was a photo of you guys in a boxing ring you're wearing your chicago bulls gear yeah you know i i think during the course of that time i was there i realized that periodically during the course of the season the team did these posters in various themes keep in mind if you're on a 10-day contract or a couple 10-day contracts you don't expect to be included in any promotional materials. Yes, certainly. So when I was asked to be a part of that, it, it really meant a lot to me. Uh, and so going and, and doing that poster and, you know, it was complimentary. It meant a lot. But I lost every copy of that poster I had. So when you sent me a copy of it in preparation of, of this interview, I was heartwarmed. I started forwarding it by text and email to everybody. <laughs> and, and so I want to thank you for that. And, and I still don't actually have a hard copy of it, but I probably will go to Kinko's and take the email and ask them to do it justice. Oh, that's fantastic. I'd love, <laughs> I'd love to see the finished product if you do get to put it up on display because it's just an incredible 
uh, incredible piece of memorabilia and uh, hopefully it might turn up on eBay one day and you might be able to get it that way. But um, just for our listener, Sydney, call me Mr. Green. He's at the far left. It's Lightning, Michael Holton, John Rocky Paxson, um, <laughs> <laughs> Peaceful Kyle Macy and uh, Gene Maximum Security Banks. So... <laughs> <laughs> did you did you have any say in the nicknames or were they just afforded to you? No, no, no. I did not choose the name, but you know, I've been called worse things than lightning. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's great. So I'll definitely include a uh, a photo of that in the show notes to this episode. Um and good luck finding a, a full size version of it one day. Just briefly before we chat on the Portland Trailblazers, and so far, thank you so much for your time as well. I hope you don't mind sort of elaborating on your career like this, but I read that you briefly actually played in the Philippine Basketball Association between leaving the Bulls and before you signed as a free agent with the Blazers in August of 86. Is that correct? That is correct. That's, that's very good research, Adam. When, when the Bulls left me off that playoff roster and I sat in that hotel in Chicago watching the playoffs, I received a phone call from my agent that a team in the Philippines wanted me to come and complete the season. There were only six weeks left in the PBA, the Philippine Basketball Association season. Right. And so I'm sitting in a Chicago hotel, you know, not playing. So I took off uh, as soon as that playoff series concluded with the Celtics and flew right to Manila and joined Great Taste Coffee of the Philippine Basketball Association. And my wife and I went there and I, I played six weeks, uh, played extremely well, had a great time, and then came back and signed uh, with the Portland Trailblazers. Wow. So I did come across there somewhere online uh, information about it. It wasn't a whole lot, but it had some kind of series that you played in. I don't know if it was like a playoff series or in a couple of those games, you had two 40-plus point games. Uh, like there was a 47-point game, I think, and maybe a 46-point game. Um, so obviously you were lighting it up over there in the Philippines. Once you leave an environment where you're playing against Michael Jordan every day, it gets a little easier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd agree with that. <laughs> oh, that's great. That puts it into perfect perspective there. So you did sign as a veteran free agent with the Blazers in August of 86. And from what I've read, you participated in Portland's rookie camp and then you joined the team for its summer league games in LA. Um, and I sent to you just yesterday uh, a clip from one of the summer league games where you chalked up 37 points against the Phoenix Suns. So what memories do you have of beginning your career uh, in Rip City, a place obviously that still holds a very uh, close part to your heart to this day? What I remember, if I can kind of back up just a little bit. Please do. Is that experience in Chicago on the 10-day contract and signing for the rest of the year and, and playing with Michael Jordan and competing every day in practice and then going immediately to the Philippines continuing to play, playing well, coming back, playing in the summer pro league for the Portland Trailblazers was a long stretch of basketball because prior to going to Chicago on the 10 day, I'd been in the CBA, I'd been a CBA all-star. And, and so all of a sudden, you know, I've played, you know, seven, eight, nine months straight. So I was in the best shape of my life. Right. Uh, you know, when I got to the NBA Summer League after I signed with the Portland Trailblazers. That's true as well. Um, I hadn't actually thought of it that way because some of the players may just take their foot off the pedal that little bit. They're not quite in the, the shape they need to be heading into the following season. So that must have uh, obviously worked in your favor as well. 
You had a new coach at the time with the Blazers in Mike Shuler. Uh, he'd replaced the legendary Dr. Jack Ramsey, and you had a very good regular season record. It was 49 and 33, the best effort for a, a Blazers squad since the 1978 season. And you had the number three seed in the West, but were upset by the number six seeded Houston Rockets in the first round of those 87 playoffs. Um, what did you make of that first season in Portland? You know, the first season in Portland, uh, A, I was happy to be in Portland. I love Portland and I love the organization. But that first year, I didn't play a whole lot, you know, because there was a three-guard rotation with Clyde Drexler, Terry Porter, and Jim Paxson. A lot of learning and kind of cheerleading. And, and so that first year was, you know, I learned more by watching than I did by playing. And we went 50 and 32, and Mike Schuler was coach of the year. But the second year was very different because Jim Paxson got traded to the Boston Celtics for Jerry Seasting. And I slid into the three-guard rotation slot with Terry Porter and Clyde Drexler and played in all 82 games. Yeah, you had a, a really good season in that uh, following year, the 88 season. I think by virtue of, uh, who was it? I think the Lakers, Nuggets and Mavericks had really good seasons as well. And therefore, even though you had a great record, you were the number four seed. Heading into the playoffs, you took on the Utah Jazz, but unfortunately bowed out in the first round 3-1. Um, what was that mood like in Portland after that setback? Uh, I mean, we were down because we we had, I think, big expectations. Very solid regular season that we were confident going into the playoffs that we could get out of the first round. You know, and then losing 3-1, you know, you just kind of, you know, you take one on the chin and, you know, losing an NBA playoff series, that last game is the equivalent of losing an NCAA tournament game in college to me because it's season ending. Uh, and so I always took those games hard, last games of a season uh, hard. And I remember when we lost to Utah, I, I took it really hard because I think deep down inside, I also knew that the NBA was in the process of expanding and that there was an expansion draft coming. Yeah, well, that's true, and we'll get to that in just a moment. Just a, a couple of great names you touched on there. Uh, obviously, Clyde Drexler, Terry Porter. Uh, you played with some other greats, including um, Jerome Kersey, who sadly passed away far too young. Kevin Duckworth, uh, another tragic loss. Um, what was it like, actually, then, when you moved into that rotation, playing behind Drexler and Porter, um, two all-time greats of uh, the Blazers franchise, no doubt, and NBA greats? Um, how did you find that adjustment? Obviously, you played with and against uh, Michael Jordan when it comes to practice and even before as a player on other teams. What did you sort of make of that comparison against those guys? It was different in Portland because uh, in Chicago, I felt like more of a competitor with Michael Jordan than a teammate uh, just because of me being uh, on a 10-day and him coming back, trying to get back in shape. In Portland, I mean, having gone through training camp and a whole season and then getting in the rotation, it was far more harmonious to me, to play with Clyde and Terry. And, and it was interesting because Clyde and Terry started, obviously, and then Clyde would come out first and I would come in. And I was thinking that I was going to get the type of shots that Clyde was getting. And Michael Schuler was thinking that Terry Porter was going to become the two guard. And my job was to just distribute the ball and run the team. So that was kind of funny because I came in and felt like I couldn't shoot and that I was one turnover away from Clyde coming back in. <laughs> You always had that sort of uh, looming large. 
in case that was a possibility. Uh, and I haven't actually mentioned to this point yet, you're a left-hander, or at least you shoot left-handed and your strong hand is the left, even though you could go both ways. Um, I'm a left-hander as well, but I didn't get past our local recreation league here in Australia. So <laughs> that's the only <laughs> comparison I'll ever make about me and yourself. But did that work in your advantage being a lefty? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, there's not very many left-handed players in the game, and there, there certainly wasn't at that time. Yeah, right. Yeah, getting to the basket with my left hand, and it, it helped me, and it, it really helped me in terms of passing angles to deliver the ball to the post and to other players. So I, I always felt it gave me some, some passing angles not afforded right-hand players. I was uh, curious about that when I saw some highlights online, and uh, yeah, you had a nice left-handed stroke there, which is good. Now, uh, you did mention a moment ago about the expansion draft. In June of 88, you were drafted by a new franchise, the Charlotte Hornets. In the expansion draft, they selected you with their sixth pick, which was the 12th overall, because they were um, alternating picks with the other new franchise, the Miami Heat. How did you actually learn the news that you became a Hornets player? I'm not sure how I heard it, but I know I cried. I mean, it's a big transition to go from a team that was only two years away from making the NBA finals um, to then going to an expansion team. So uh, some different emotions for sure. Yeah, because for me, you know, when you look at the journey from being in, in the CBA and the NBA and the CBA and the NBA again, and, and then I got to Portland and I didn't play for a whole season. And then I finally had a role on a 50-win team. And so I felt like I'd finally climbed the mountain and, and gotten to a point of stability in my career. And then I went in the expansion draft and, and needed to start over. So that just kind of really emotionally was a tough pill to swallow because my wife and I had bought our first home in Portland. We had our first child in Portland. I mean, we just really had settled in. So, you know, and then the Charlotte Hornets selected 16 guards in that expansion draft. Mm. I had to go back into a training camp, earn your way situation. And, and it was uphill because a lot of the guards selected in that draft were really good. Yeah, there's some great players selected from obviously all the other teams that left players unprotected because I think you could only maybe protect, was it six players? I can't remember how many you could actually protect. It was eight players that you could protect. Okay. And in Charlotte, when I got there, I think I was the third guard on the depth chart at the shooting guard spot and the third guard on the depth chart at the point guard spot because at the shooting guard spot was Del Curry, Rex Chapman, and then me. At the point guard spot was Ricky Green, Muggsy Bogues, and then me. And so I felt a little bit on the bubble when I got to Charlotte in terms of, am I going to make this team? Some serious questions that you'd be asking, sure. And Clearly, you obviously had strong links to Portland, having just sort of set up yourselves, as you mentioned there, and established yourselves uh, in that part of the world. Um, if I'm correct, I think you started the first 60 games of Charlotte's inaugural season, and you had probably arguably your best NBA statistical season, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, in 1989, when you averaged over eight points, six assists, and one steal in just over 25 minutes a game. So would you consider that to be your best productive season as a pro or would you refer back to that second season in Portland certainly in Charlotte was my best season I mean I, I was a solid starter and what happened was Ricky Green pulled his hamstring Dick Carter the then coach didn't want to start Muggsy so he started me and and I made the most of the situation and, and, and had a my best year as a pro so I felt really good you know during the course of that experience in Charlotte not just because I started and and played reasonably consistently that Charlotte Hornet team at that point in time 
set a record in that it broke the league's attendance record. Yep. Uh, in that no expansion team had ever led a league in attendance in its inaugural season. I'm so glad you mentioned that because my next point was going to be, I compiled the stats quickly before we chatted today uh, through basketballreference.com and the Hornets led the league in attendance in eight of its first 10 seasons. The two they didn't were the second place. So incredible support from the fans from the word go. Uh, and similar to Portland, I guess, the fans love the Portland Trailblazers and the Hornets fans fell in love immediately with Charlotte. So do you remember like the hype and the build up to the team's NBA uh, debut? I do. It was an unbelievable thing to be a part of. I mean, how excited the city of Charlotte got around that team. You know, Adam, on opening night, everybody came to the game in tuxedos. <laughs> it was a black tie formal event when we played our first game in Charlotte. I can't remember that whatsoever. That's fantastic. I mean, as a player, you're just like, wow, this is this is big time. And we lost by 37 to the Cleveland Cavaliers and got a standing ovation. A reality check in some ways, however, the fact that the fans were giving you that uh, love back is uh, certainly says something as well for how much they uh, love the franchise from the word go. Yep. I learned that um, you've required some back surgery prior to the start of the 1990 season, and after an 8-32 and start, Coach Harder was replaced by Gene Littles. And you finished the season 19-63. and 63. Uh, Personally, I think you only managed 16 games. And you didn't return to the court until late February. Um, do you mind just talking a little bit about, if you don't mind, if it's not too personal, that recovery from surgery uh, and watching on from the sidelines as a team was obviously really struggling. Yeah, it was. It was really the toughest time in my in my career uh, in terms of having you know such a serious injury. And there were some things that kind of happened behind the scenes medically in terms of. Well, who did the surgery? I mean, I had my own doctor. I didn't use the team's doctor, and, and that didn't bode well with the team. It didn't help the relationship dynamic of my rehab. Okay. Because, you know, the team had a staff of people that felt one way. I had a doctor that felt one way. To make a long story short, I should not have played at the end of that season. Uh, you know, my doctor that did the surgery thought I should take the season off. And the team felt like they wanted to see, you know, where I stood and what I had and what I could do. And, and so it just was a really tough time for me professionally to feel pressure from a team to play. We weren't going to the playoffs and I wasn't 100 uh, percent. And so when I look at my career and a lot of the things we've talked about that have been, you know, exciting and, and upbeat, I remember that time as being one of the saddest times in my pro career. Mm, thanks again for opening up about that. Um just three days before the start of the 1991 season, uh, the Hornets waived you. Did you see that as a move that may have been possible at the time, or did it catch you by surprise? Uh, I think it, it caught me by surprise more than it should have. At the end of that first season in Charlotte, I signed a new three-year contract. So okay. I had two years left on my contract going into that training camp and, and I had worked really hard that summer to strengthen my back and, and to regain my form. I came into training camp really excited uh, and ready to go. But, you know, I think the team had uh, given up on me for the most part and it had moved on and had moved forward, I think, in their plans for, for how they were going to play that position. And, and so, you know, they released me. Mm. You finished your playing career with stops in the CBA. I think it was first uh, the Tulsa Fast Breakers and then the expansion Tri-City Chinook. 
Um, in July 91, you tried out with a few teams like Miami, Houston and Milwaukee, I've read. Reflecting back on, on how that sort of played out, um, were you close to getting a spot back in the NBA or ending your playing days in the CBA was uh, where it was going to finish? Well, I wanted to return to the NBA. I don't think after the back surgery in Charlotte, I was the same. You know, so Charlotte probably made the right decision as I look back today. Right. You know, I think I lost a little bit of my foot speed. And, and you know, I was, you know, an average or marginal player anyway. So playing in the CBA, I think I, I really started to realize that, A, I was older, <laughs> B, I wasn't as effective as I was before the back surgery. So not returning to the NBA, you know, I knew was was on the horizon. Again, I appreciate the uh, openness and honesty there. And as I did say in the intro when we started chatting, um, you're all about perseverance, seizing opportunities and, and being determined. So that's what led to you having the career and the length of career that you did. So that's important to, to reflect back on as well. I'd just like to, to briefly transition into your time coaching after the game um you've been so generous with your time so far so i don't want to hold you up for too much longer but thanks so much not long after retiring as a player from what i can tell your first job was at pasadena city college and you were an assistant coach to the gentleman you first mentioned earlier on your high school coach george terzian so i think that was a pretty cool bit of information there so how was that to enter the coaching ranks and have your high school coach as the man that you were assistant to yeah, that that was that was a phenomenal experience for me because I had gone into sales and just didn't feel like it was my calling. And, and so I wanted to coach and, and I trusted my high school coach so much. He had been such a big influence in my life. And so starting with him was really important to me. Uh, and so I spent that first season with him uh, before moving on to the University of Portland as an assistant coach at the Division One level. Mm, and also um, that's a, a school where you'd later coach for five seasons. You had another assistant role at Oregon State as well, just prior to then returning to your alum, uh, UCLA. You stayed with UCLA through the 2001 season in a role of assistant coach and like a recruiting coordinator of sorts. Pretty sure that every season that you were there with UCLA, you made the postseason, the NCAA tournament. How was it to return back to UCLA close to 15 years removed as a player? That was exciting. A chance to coach at your alma mater and return to UCLA. And in those five years, not only did we go to five NCAA tournaments under Steve Lavin, but we had three sweet 16 finishes, an elite eight finish and a conference championship. Some incredible achievements there. Yeah. And uh, the role of recruiting coordinator. It was challenging because a lot of it was administrative. I mean, having to coordinate the recruiting budget and the flights and the travel schedules of all of the assistants, in addition to evaluating talent and, you know, putting our program in the best position. And in those five years, we signed two top five recruiting classes in the country and the number one class uh, one year. Great achievements. Did you have a preference towards the coaching side of things or was the uh, administration side of things and the recruiting part also enjoyable? What what did you prefer over the two? Uh, I enjoyed the recruiting part more because uh, the administrative part of being a recruiting coordinator was new. And so it was a learning curve and a challenge. So I like learning. Uh, and then I'm a people person, so I like evaluating talent. I like talking to coaches and parents and uncles and AAU coaches and building a relationship web around a recruit. You know, fit my skills and I enjoy it. After you left UCLA 
you took over the head coaching position at the University of Portland and you left the pilots in 2006 after five seasons with the team. I'd just love to know a few thoughts that you may have had about that step up to running the team and then some of the highlights from that journey. You know, it, it was interesting because when I became a head coach, one of the things that struck me right away was my lack of preparedness. Okay. Because in my three years as a Division One assistant, I primarily recruited. And in the role as recruiting coordinator, I spent, you know, probably 60, 70 percent of my time and energies in the recruiting area. And so all of a sudden I was a head coach. And I mean, I knew basketball and I knew X's and O's, but teaching and organizing the X's and O's and managing my time around coaching the team really was a challenge. Some of the research I was doing for our chat today, I read that you took the team at one stage to a restaurant somewhere in Portland and you were trying to instill in them proper etiquette and and how to get the most out of their lives on and off the basketball court as well. So even though you said that um, you found it a little bit surprising the uh, amount of preparation involved, clearly you were trying to get the absolute best out of every player that uh, you had the chance of, of coaching throughout that period of time. Yeah, I think the one thing that I always tried to give the coaching experience is what I got from being coached, which I learned how to be a man, how to have character, how to have integrity and how to act appropriately in all environments. And so I always wanted to give that back to any team I coached. And as a head coach, it was a high priority for me to to make sure our, our guys knew how to behave and knew how to be respectful. Uh, and I spend a lot of time and energy in that area. Mm, and that's great to hear as well. Um, we've touched on him already. Uh, your your former teammate at Portland, Terry Porter, recently has been named the head coach at the University of Portland. So knowing him as you do, how do you think he'll go heading into this upcoming season uh, looking after the Portland Pilots? I think he's going to experience a learning curve similar to the one I experienced. Uh, he's more experienced as a head coach, uh, being a head coach in the NBA on separate occasions. You know, but he has not been in the college game as a coach at any level, uh, as an assistant or a head coach. So, you know, there'll be a learning curve there. But, you know, Terry's a really smart guy. We've talked a lot about it, and I, I think he'll figure it out pretty quickly. You know, but nobody's born a head coach, and nobody's born a college head coach. So there's going to be a learning curve. Yeah, that's uh, understandable. Now, you still keep very active these days working within the game of basketball. Uh, you're working with the Portland Trailblazers broadcasting team, and very recently you teamed up with former teammate and friend of yours, Mike Sanders, as you alluded to, for a camp in Prague, um, which is part of Michael Holton Basketball Academy. Do you mind just talking a little bit about the importance of uh, staying active in the game and also your giving back to the community as well? Well, you know, when I got fired at the University of Portland, I was prepared you know, to transition out of basketball and into business. Okay. So for that first year, I didn't do a basketball camp. And then some people reached out to me and, and thought that it was a positive thing in the community for me to continue to have my basketball academy. So I, I started doing it uh, again. And, and all of a sudden, you know, one academy became two, became three, and one year became, I think now we're in year seven or eight or nine. And, you know, giving back to the game of basketball and giving back to the community, you know, I feel a sense of responsibility to do. Well said. And I've read constantly throughout the research for my chat with you today about the fact that you enjoyed being a part of the community and giving back. So um, I'm pleased to hear that as well. Um, just a couple more quick questions, if you don't mind. 
Here's one I love to ask uh, guests when I have a chance to chat with them. Basketball Digest, they used to have a, a great regular feature which was called The Game I'll Never Forget. Is there a particular game from your entire career that would stand out the most? Perhaps we've already already chatted about it, but what one might stand out atop the rest? Wow. I think it would be the championship my high school team won my junior year because it's the only championship I've won in my life. I mean, when I say championship, I mean the last game, last team standing. And the reason why it stands out so much to me is because I got disciplined in that playoff run because the guys didn't pass me the ball in the quarterfinal game and I didn't ride the team bus. And so the coach benched me and didn't start me the next game. And then he didn't start me in the semis and then he didn't start me in the championship. Wow. And we won the championship. And so when I look back over my basketball career, I realized Coach Turgeon had enough integrity to discipline me at the possible expense of a championship and won the championship. That's fantastic. I know that when I asked the question to guests, I could get any kind of reply back about what might be the most memorable game, but that's a unique one. Thanks for sharing that one. Um, the last question that I, I really do love to ask is about the jersey numbers that you wore throughout your career. You wore number 14 at UCLA, number 15 with the Suns. At Chicago, I believe you had number 10 and... 32 at different times and with portland and charlotte you had number six now do you have any particular significance at all to some of those numbers that you wore uh, a little bit and this is this is a great question adam because it's really funny <laughs> so i wore 14 in high school because the player that preceded me on the team i admired and so i wore 14 right and brad holland wore 14 at ucla and i admired the way he scored and so i continued to wear 14 and when I got to, I guess, Phoenix was my next stop, right? Yeah. 14 wasn't available, so I wore 15. And when I got to Portland in the summer league, the number on my laundry bag pin was six. Okay. <laughs> and when I made the team, I was afraid to ask for another number. So I just said, I'll keep taking number six. That's a good one. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> You didn't want to tempt fate, perhaps, and just wanted to stay with what you knew. Yeah, I just wanted to stay under the radar. So I kept six. And then when I went to Charlotte, they said, do you want number six? I said, sure. <laughs> How about um, Chicago with number 10 and number 32? Was there any significance behind those? I forget what the 32 thing was all about, but 10 was just the number that they gave me. I mean, when I showed up in Philadelphia uh, that night, we played and, and I went to the locker room. The jersey hanging in there was number 10, so I just put it on. And did it have Holton on the back of it? It did have Holton on the back of it, and I was a little unsure whether I was going to just kind of be a generic player that night. <laughs> <laughs> they obviously did pretty well to get that jersey made up for you uh, virtually uh, within a day of you meeting with Jerry Krause. So um, fascinating stuff all around. Uh, I can't thank you enough for chatting with me for this period of time, Michael. It's been a real pleasure to have you on the show, and uh, thanks again for so much time, and I wish you continued success uh, in the future. Thanks a lot, Thanks for listening. I welcome your interaction with the show. Suggest topics or guests you want to hear conversations with. Leave me a voicemail. Simply visit inallairness.com slash voice. Click start recording. Leave a message and press stop. You can even listen back before submitting. Press send and you're done. Worldwide, the show currently has 57 reviews, 54 on iTunes and 3 on Stitcher. 
Thanks for your continued support. If you do add a review, I'd love to read it out on a future episode of the show. Your ratings and reviews are one of the best ways to support the podcast. If you do enjoy the show, please tell your basketball-loving friends about it. I really appreciate it, and your word-of-mouth recommendations are more than worth their weight in gold. You can subscribe to my show in various ways. iTunes, visit inallairness.com slash review. Add it to your Stitcher playlist, inallairness.com slash Stitcher. And you can also subscribe on Pocket Casts, Player FM, TuneIn Radio, other podcatchers, and of course, via the Podcasts app on your iOS device of choice. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show and share my web address with your friends and colleagues in allairness.com. Check out the podcast archive for plenty more episodes with high-profile guests. Follow me on Twitter at inallairness. Please add your like to the show's social hub, facebook.com slash inallairness. Join me next time for another edition of the show.